Well, I left my preaching Bible at home, so I have my study Bible this morning. You might wonder what the difference is. Well, that's part of it right there. Um, this has been worn just a little bit, and so it's, uh, it's falling apart, but that's okay. So I heard a preacher once say that a Bible that's falling apart probably belongs to someone who isn't. All right, I'm going to let that one catch up with you. Amen. A Bible that's falling apart often belongs to someone who isn't. <laughs> so we ought to read our Bibles. Amen. We ought to study the Word of God. The Word of God is what gives us strength and grace and life for each day. So uh, this is my study Bible. And uh, when I opened it up, I, I just kind of smile and thank the Lord for the fact that I'm blessed to have more than one Bible. There are people in the world that don't even have access to the Word of God. I'd like to see that changed. Amen? And I know that you'd like to see that changed. I'd love to see what God can do through First Baptist Church Mableton and getting the Word of God to the ends of the earth. So, With that in mind, turn to Revelation chapter 2 this morning. Revelation chapter 2. We're going to finish up our look at the seven churches this morning, the seven churches of Revelation. We're going to finish up our study in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. Now... Uh, as, we're, as you're turning there and as we're getting ready, I want to I share a couple of things. There, there's so many things. I I, every now and then I'll say things like, you know, the worst thing or, the, the, you know, there's, this, there's this, uh, the one thing that we do wrong or something to that effect. Sometimes I kind of limit, but the reality is there's a lot of things we do wrong in life. There's a lot of issues that we need to be concerned about. There are a lot of things in the church that concern me and burden me. And one of the things that concerns me and burdens me is that we have this attitude in the church. There's actually two things that kind of relate to each other. We have this attitude in the church, number one, that the church belongs to us. That, that we're responsible for the welfare and the maintenance of the church. That, that if a church is going to make a difference in its community, then the, the members of the church are going to be the ones who determine how that's done. And we unintentionally pull God out of that equation and, and, and we take the church that he's established and we take it away from him, if you will. Sometimes unintentionally and often not even knowing that we're doing that, but then other times where we know exactly what we're doing. That if you were to push certain pastors and I think certain churches and congregations to get them to tell you what they really think and feel, they would tell you point blank, we run this church. You know, we, 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 God gave it to us, and we'll take it from there. <laughs> and that's a dangerous and, and deadly idea, especially when, when we know that we've taken authority and power away from God. The other dangerous tendency, dangerous tendency I see in the church, and it ties especially to these seven churches, and I've been guilty of this through the years. When I used to preach from the seven churches of Revelation, this was kind of my philosophy, was you looked at the seven churches, and you, you sort of berated a congregation and you looked at how God rebuked these churches, only, only, uh, only one of them that he didn't rebuke at all, only one of them that he had nothing bad to say about, and only one of the churches that he had nothing good to say about. So there was a rebuke and a, and, and a, and a, and a, a commendation and a condemnation to those churches, to all the churches except for two. But the tendency in preaching is to focus on the condemnation. And, and I've heard preachers do it, and I've been guilty of saying, you know, oh, you've left your first love, you know, and, and, and instead of preaching it from the standpoint of, hey, let's, let's look at who Jesus is and fall back in love with him, we just leave sort of still feeling guilty about the fact that we've left our first love, 
and nobody told us how to find that first love again, how to go back to that first love. Or we're told that we're a lukewarm church and we leave just as lukewarm as we were when we came with no idea how to get either hot or cold for God. And, And so about a year and a half ago, when I first encountered this in one of my commentaries on Revelation, this approach to the seven churches, it changed the way I look at the, not just the seven churches, but the book of Revelation. And the way, and, and what was in this particular commentary was that the writer noted that in each of the churches, the letters all start and end the same way. They all start with a declaration from Christ about who he is. And they all conclude with a promise, with a promise that he gives to those who will remain faithful to him and to the churches that will keep, uh, continue to recognize his sovereignty over the church and will trust him. Amen? Even the ones that he rebukes, he tells them who he is. and, And we need to be reminded of who Christ is because none of us, None of us is, we're, we're not what the world needs. You, me, individually on our own, we, we can't bring anything to a, to a world that's as broken as it is. The only thing that we bring to the world is what Christ gives us to, the bring, to bring to the world, and he gives us himself. And, and once, we, once we move away from Christ, whether we know it or not, then the world is not going to be able to see him, and he's the one they need. And so as we look at these seven churches, and what I want to do this morning is I want to look at how he introduces himself, and I want to look at the reward. And we're going to cover all seven churches, and we're going to do it quickly. Don't, don't, don't worry. Amen. Shouldn't take us long, because we've already looked at the churches. We know the problems they had. And we talked about how the fact that the church went very quickly to a place where they had moved away from Jesus. They'd begun to compromise theology and doctrine and practice in the church. Worldly attitudes were coming into the church. And they were beginning to make excuses and justifications for how and why they were no longer committed to the word of God. And, 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 and they were doing great things. All these churches, even for the ones, again, that had the problems, they were doing great things. And until the very last church when God just says, you've become lukewarm. You've reached a point where you don't even realize how stale you've become. And that scares me, amen, Uh, to know that that it's possible to reach that point. And I'll give you this before we look at the churches. Um, I have a sermon that I preach, and it's called A a Contrast of Christians. And uh, and it's a two-part sermon. And I look at Samson, and I look at Moses. Because... And, and I, wish, I wish I'd have seen this. I heard this from another preacher. He, he, he preached it, and then I just took it and just made it mine. Amen. That's most of my sermons. You're going to find, amen. I say, well, did you get that, brother? Is that from you, or did you get that from another preacher? Well, that depends on how much you liked it. Amen. That's just how we do that. But, but he made the statement, and I've dug into it, and I've, and I've made it my own sermon. I've preached it through the years now. Because there's, there's a statement made about both these men that is incredibly frightening to me. The first statement that's made about Samson is that the Bible says that the power of God had departed from him and he knew it not. 
he got up after, she, after Delilah had cut his hair. He got up just like he'd always done before. And he said, I'll take care of these Philistines. And all of a sudden, when he realized that he couldn't break the chains, that he couldn't overpower him, that he didn't have the power he used to have when it was too late. He did not know that the power of God departed from him. Oh, but then there's a beautiful contrast to that. Moses, when he came down from the mountain where he had spent time in the presence of God, receiving the word of God, he came down and the Bible says his face, his countenance had changed so that it shone or shined in the King James, it's shown with the brightness or the glory of God. And the Bible says that Moses knew it not. And, and, and so you have one man who had lost the power. So far away from God, he'd lost the power and he didn't know it. And there was another one who was so close to God that he shined with the glory of God and he didn't know it. Now, beloved, if there's going to be something you don't know in your life, then, or something I don't know in my life, I'd like it to be that I don't know how close I am to God because that's going to keep me moving closer. Amen? But I would love it. I would, and it's going to keep me from getting proud. And, and so when the people began to point out to Moses how he shone, the Bible says that he had to take a veil and he had to cover his face. And, uh, oh, and, and, oh, but this is the powerful part of that. Not only did the Bible say that he had to cover his face, but he covered his face because he didn't know when the glory would depart. And he didn't want anybody to look at him and go, oh, you're not shining like you used to shine. And so he veiled himself. Beloved, there is a part of us in this world where we have to do whatever we have to do to make sure that we are not the ones the world sees but that Christ is the one the world sees. We have to make sure that we have the power of God in our life. We have to make sure that we're close enough to Christ in our life, or at least desire it, even if we don't know it. We gotta make sure and search our hearts and make sure that our desire is not that we are magnified, but that Christ is magnified. Because Christ alone can change this world, amen? So let's look at the seven churches. Let's, let's look at what he says to them. And we're going to do it, I'm going to do a little, I was going to do the seven attributes and then the seven rewards. I'm going to look at them together. We're going to do attribute, reward, we're going to look at them in order, and we're going to see what Jesus says. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. The first thing he says in chapter 2, verse 1, to the church at Ephesus, he says, These things saith he that holds the seven stars in his right hand, and who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. The very first church, the very first thing that Jesus says to identify himself to them is that he is the one who has authority over all the churches and he is present among them. And you'll remember we said that the seven stars, the Bible tells us the seven stars are the seven angels of the churches and the seven candlesticks are the seven churches. And so he says, I'm the one who holds the seven stars in, in my hand. And, and we, we believe that those seven stars, the Hebrew or the Greek word that's used there is a, is, a, is a term that's used to reference one who guides or gives directions. And therefore it probably speaks of the pastors of those churches, the, the leaders of those churches. So he holds the pastors in his hands and he walks as he holds them in his hands. He walks walks among all the candlesticks. It doesn't say, I am he who walks among six of the candlesticks, or five, or four, or one. No, I am he who walks among all the candlesticks, all seven of these churches. Every church, every church, Jesus is present in every church in some way, moving among us and holding the hearts of the best and the worst of pastors in his hands. 
That's how he starts his letter to the seven churches. I am sovereign over my church. Jesus told Peter that upon this rock, I will build my church. You know, one of the things that we're killing ourselves as Christians, you want to know why? We're trying to build our church, or worse, we're trying to build Christ's church. He will build his church. We just need to surrender to him in the process. We need to let him be the one who's doing the building. We're just the tools. We're just the resources that he uses. Amen? Now, he says, I'm he who holds seven stars, and I walk among them. And he says that in verse 1. Well, then in verse 7, how does he finish his letter to this church? This is the church that had left its first love. He finishes it by saying, he that has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. To him that overcomes... Will I give him to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God? And so what reward does he offer to this church and to this particular kind? What does he offer? What does he say as the one who is sovereign over the churches? He is saying, I am the one who gives you the privilege of eating of the tree of life. I am the one. When he says to this church who had left its first love, he says, remember that not only am I the one who is sovereign over the churches, but I am the one who gives life and I am the one who takes it away. I am the one and the only one, the only way by which you will ever have access to an eternity with God in heaven. It's through Jesus Christ. Jesus is not a way, beloved. Jesus is the way. Jesus is not one of many gods. Jesus is the only God. He is not one of many ways. He is the only way. We are living in a day in a society, and the rest of these churches are going to follow that path where they're doing the same, same struggle they had, same struggle with 2,000 years. It hasn't changed. But we're living in a day when we're being told that, that you can believe whatever you want to believe, have whatever faith you want to have. As long as you live a good moral life, eventually you'll see God. Or if you don't want to believe in God, you don't have to believe in God. You live your life and you die. You live and die however you want to do it. And it's all going to work out in the end. And the Bible does not teach that at all. The Bible says you either give your life to Christ or you have no life. He says, I am the one who will allow you to eat of the tree of life in the midst of of the paradise of God. Remember, when he said to this church, he didn't say you've lost your first love. He said you left your first love. You see, they were close, but they weren't close enough. And when I hear this and I read this letter, Hebrews chapter 6 echoes in my ears. And in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, that's where the writer of Hebrews says, and he says that uh, there are those of you that have tasted of the good things of God. You've you've tasted of the Holy Spirit. You've you've come to the table and you've seen the spread and you've sampled. You've, You've been to church. You're familiar with the Word of God. But in the end, you've walked away. And he says for the person who gets that close to God and walks away, that there's no other form for, there's no other way to repent. There's no other way of salvation because you're either in Christ or you're not. And when we look at Hebrews chapter 4, a lot of times we use that passage. And a lot of preachers and a lot of churches use that passage and say, well, that means you can lose your salvation. I think it means something much, 
much worse than that. I'm old school. I read my Bible. I don't think you can lose your salvation. If you think that, that's fine. We'll have that conversation at a later date. I think that when you're a child of God, your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. It's there. We're going to talk about that in one of the other churches in a minute. But but here's what I think is a horrible thing, a, a dangerous, deadly thing, is you can be so close to the truth, so close to Christ, that you almost get it, and yet when your life ends... You never actually knew him, and you never actually became a child of God. You were never actually saved from your sins, and your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. That there are people who will spend their whole life in church and miss the tree of life. Christ is the tree of life. In the Garden of Eden, the tree of life is where they went, and they they could eat the tree of life. And the Bible says that after they sinned, they were cast out of the garden, and he moved the tree of life into heaven. And that's what we read here in the book of Revelation. In order to get access to the tree of life, you have to go through God. And God says the only way to get to him is to go through his son, Jesus Christ. And so he starts the letter by reminding us that he is sovereign over the church, and he moves among every church. There is no church that Christ isn't moving on. And so then the second church, look at chapter 2, look at verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, he says, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. So not only is he the church who has authority, the Christ who has authority over the churches and is present among them, but he is the Christ alone who is the risen Christ and who gives victory over death. I am the first and the last. I am the one who is dead, but I am alive. The tomb, beloved, is empty. You cannot go. You can go anywhere you want in Jerusalem and you can ask them to show you the tomb of Jesus and they will take you to what they believe is the tomb of Jesus. And when you get there, you will not find Jesus because he is not there. He is risen. I can take you to the tomb uh, of any great religious leader in the world and if you were to dig up that grave, you would find bones and the decaying body. They are all dead and they are gone. But if you go to the tomb of Jesus, he is not there, he is alive. And so he's writing to the churches and he says, I'm sovereign, I'm alive. Everything that humanity is crying out for, for life and purpose and victory and and everything we're looking for, Jesus is saying you will only find that in me. Everything that you think you're, you're looking for to satisfy you, money, power, fame, and wealth, Jesus says the only way to ever be truly alive is to know the one who gives life and has eternal life. And the one who came out of the grave and left the grave empty. The one who went down into hell and took the keys of death and hell so that he alone conquered the grave. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? There is no sting and there is no defeat for the child of God. We will rise because Christ has risen. So what does he say to this church? Look at verse 10 and 11. And he says this to the church that's being persecuted. Not only the church that's being persecuted, but he says, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be put in jail, and some of you are going to die. So what does he say to them? Do not fear those things which you will suffer. Behold, the devil will cast some of you into prison, and you will be tried, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Every letter he finishes, he says, 
Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He writes to Ephesus, but says, let every church hear it. All the churches hear it. He writes to Smyrna, but let all the churches hear it. Let, listen to what I'm saying to all of the churches. He that overcomes, that's the second time he said it now, he that overcomes shall not be heard of the second death. Well, how are we overcomers? The Bible says that we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us all. We have overcome because Christ is the overcomer. To him that overcomes. Who is the one that overcomes? The only one who overcomes is the one who's put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. When you trust in him, he is the one who gives the crown of life. So he says to the church who's facing persecution and death, he says, number one, I'm the one who gives victory over death. And not only do I, I'm the one who has victory over death, but not only do I have victory over death, I will give you a crown of life and you also have victory over death. I don't know how I'm going to leave this world. I don't know how any of us are going to leave this world, but I'm, it might be slow, it, it might be sudden, it might be, it might be a long process, but I know this, at one point, I'm going to close my eyes, and when I open them, I will no longer behold this world. And I'm convinced that our passing from this life into the next, into the next is just a blink. It's like a closing and an opening of the eyes, and there is all the splendor of God. In the presence of God. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He's writing to these churches that are struggling. And, the, and we got the same struggles for 2,000 years. Nothing's changed. And he's reminding them of who he is. And for 2,000 years, we still need to know the same thing that they needed to know, who Jesus is. And we need to trust in him above all else. So what does he say to the third church? Look at verse 12 of chapter 2. To the angel of Pergamos, these things says he, which has the sharp sword with two edges. The one that holds the sharp two-edged sword. So here he reveals himself as the one who is and has the word of God. The word of God. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, we're told that the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of sunder of the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The sword, the word of God, the Bible, the scriptures is a two-edged sword. And it has two, and I've heard preachers say this, two edges means it cuts both ways. But not just that, but a sword in battle could be used not only to slice and to pierce, but if you turn the sword the right way, you could use the sword as an instrument to pump or to beat. You didn't have to slash someone with the sword. You could bruise someone with a sword. But ideally, and in and, and most situations, we understand that a sword is used to cut and ultimately kill. And here the word of God is used to cut away our sinfulness, to cut away our flesh. It is used to kill our pride and everything in us that is dead and dying in this world. The word of God is what God uses to show us that we are too alive to the world and dead before him. And so the word of God kills off our flesh and brings us life in Christ. That's why we don't preach Reader's Digest on Sunday morning. We don't preach from TV Guide or People Magazine or US Today. We preach from the Holy Bible, the word of God. And Jesus says, I am the one who holds the word of God. I am the one who holds the sword. And what church is he saying this to? He's saying it to the church that is beginning to compromise doctrine. 
He's saying it to the church that has begun to allow false doctrine to come into the church contrary to what the Word of God teaches. So he starts by saying, I'm the one that has the sword. This is my word. And then what does he promise to that church? He says, I give to those who, who remember this. Look at verse 17. In verse 17, he that has an ear, let him see, hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. To him that overcomes, there it is again, will I give to eat of the hidden manna and will give him a white stone and in the stone a new name written which no man knows saving he that receives it. See, the church was compromising doctrinal truth and as many churches to do today, we try to make a name for ourselves. And in order to make a name for ourselves, we have to move away from the Word of God. Because it's not popular to preach the Word of God today. Boy, I could stop and preach on that one for a while, but I'll move on. Here's what Jesus says. Quit trying to make a name for yourself in this life. And know that when you leave this world, when you get to heaven, if you can overcome this temptation, if you can get past this in the world, I'm going to give you, number one, access to the hidden manna. And number two, I'm going to give you a stone with a name written on it that nobody knows, and you don't even know it until the day that I give it to you. And we talked about that last week. We're going to get to heaven, and I think some of us are going to find out that we're more faithful than we thought we were. We're going to find out that we were more gracious and merciful than we thought we were. I want to get to heaven, and, 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 and I, want to, I can't wait to see what God thinks of me. I can't wait to see what he writes on that stone. I can't wait to see the name that he has on the stone prepared for me when I leave this world. Because when I get, a, when I get that name from God on that stone, from my creator, made for me, the name that was made for you, that's a name that's eternal. And if you want to make a name for yourself in this world, you can, but it will last only as long as this world lasts. And eventually, any name we make for ourselves in this world will be forgotten and gone, but the name that God gives us in heaven will be for eternity. And I'm going to tell you something right now. We all share one name. If you have your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we all share the name of the child of God. We are the sons and daughters of God, joint heirs with Jesus. And so he says to those who are compromising doctrine, I am the word of God. I hold the word of God. And if you will trust me, I'll give you hidden manna. He says, huh. by the way, the word of God is pictured two ways. It's pictured as the bread of life and it's pictured as the sword of the spirit. And so what he says to them is, number one, I will give you the hidden manna. That's eternal bread. And I will give you this, this, this name that comes with my protection. And so not only is the word of God the sword of the spirit, but it is our sovereign protection. It is a name that is sealed for all of eternity. Well, what about the fourth thing? What is he? Look at verse 18. Chapter 2, verse 18. What does he say? Unto the angel in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who has his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. Here he very simply, instead he doesn't use a title, he doesn't say, I'm the one walking among the candlesticks, 
I'm the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the one who holds the Spirit. No, here he tells us who he is. He says, I am the Son of God. Do you know that when Jesus was on earth, there, and there are theologians today who will tell you that Jesus never actually claimed to be the Son of God, but those are theologians who clearly haven't read their Bible. Because it was Jesus' claim to be the Son of God that the Pharisees wanted to put him to death. It was because he, because he made himself equal with God, because he made himself equal with the Father, they wanted to put him to death. Did Jesus claim to be the Son of God? Absolutely he claimed to be the Son of God. Why did he claim to be the Son of God? Because he is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. We're coming up on Christmas. We've got to get through Halloween and Thanksgiving, and we get into December, it's going to be Christmas. It might, it's Christmas now. If you've been to Walmart, Hobby, it's Christmas now. I, Christmas is going to start. I'm, they're backing it up. It's going to start in January next year. I'm convinced. But Christmas, I, I, and I don't care when they start putting stuff out. I, I want people to, but I want them to think about Christmas and realize what Christmas is about. It's about a baby born in a manger. It's about the day that God took on human flesh. He was born for one specific purpose. And if you know the song, hits it perfectly. He was born to die on Calvary for your sins and mine. God became flesh. He became, the Son of God came into this world so that he could give us the life that we could not get ourselves. So what does he say to this church? Well, look at verse 26 and 28. He that overcometh, there it is again, and keeps my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father, and I will give him the morning star. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Here the Christ who says, I am the Son of God, says, I am the Christ who gives you the privilege of sharing in the rule and glory of Christ. We are, the Bible says, we have been made a nation of kings and priests. Because we are joint heirs with Jesus, because he is royalty, that makes us royalty. Amen? We're trying to make a name for ourselves in this world. Beloved, make a name for yourself in heaven. Know that you belong to God. And what's happening in the churches today, one of the things that churches are doing is we're trying to, we're trying to, to, to make a statement about who we are instead of a statement about who Christ is. And churches are compromising theologically and everything. And I wrote this down, to the theologically corrupt and to the politically motivated church, Jesus says, I am sovereign and eternal. It doesn't matter if you're Republican, Democrat, independent, white, black, rich, poor, young, old, social status. It doesn't matter uh, what you, where you came from or who you are or what you think and believe about shaping this world. It is God alone who rules the hearts of men and he is sovereign over all the nations of the earth, including the United States of America. So what's he doing in our country right now? Well, depending on you, you ask. <laughs> Amen. I mean, we're either headed in judgment, out of judgment. And, and, and for years we've said, well, we're America, and we've been blessed by God, and we're the greatest nation on the face of the earth, and, and God's done more for us than any other nation. Can I say to you that God loves every nation 
Every people, every tribe, every tongue. That's why in the book of Revelation, when he describes heaven, he says that those gathered around the throne will be people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. There will be Germans, Russians, Americans, South Americans, North Americans, Latin Americans, Middle Easterns, Europeans, Asians. Around the throne of God, there will be people from every nation of the earth because God doesn't play the political games that we play. And he says to the church of Jesus Christ, don't make that your goal. If you want to see a day when this world looks the way that it's supposed to look, it will be when Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom on earth and we rule and reign with him. And I promise you in that day there won't be political parties. You'll either be with Jesus or not. Amen. And, and, and there, there won't be the denominations like we see them today. It'll just be God's people worshiping Christ. He says, I will give you the privilege of my rule. I will, I will, to him that overcomes and keeps my works, I will give power over the nations. And will rule with a rod of iron. Righteousness will be known in that day because Christ will sit on David's throne. Well, how do we know that? Look at chapter 3, verse 7. And look at the sixth church. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that has the key of David. He that has the key of David. He that opens and no man shuts, and he shuts and no man opens. He said, I, I, I can, when, when, I, when I open an opportunity for you, there will be nothing that can stand in the way. And when I close an opportunity for you, there will be nothing you can do to open that opportunity. God says, when I'm doing something in a church and I open a door, you can move through that door and nothing will be able to stop you. But God says, Jesus says, when I close the door in a church, that door is closed. Quit trying to open it back up. And in the midst of that, at the very beginning of that, he says, I am the one that holds the key of David. What is the key of David? What is he saying here? He is telling his church that he is the Messiah. He is the promised one. He is the one that will sit on David's throne. He is the one that, that, that the prophet said uh, when God spoke to Abraham and, and said that I will bless you and bless your seed. And when he spoke to him and when he spoke to the nations and, and to the nation of Israel, he told them that there's going to come a day when I will put my king upon David's throne. And no one will be able to take him off of that throne. The day is going to come. And when Jesus showed up and, and, and everything that he did, and they couldn't understand who he was because they were looking for a political redeemer. They were looking for him to knock Herod off the throne. They were looking for him to deliver him, deliver them from the dominion of the Roman Empire. But what they missed what they missed was that the first time Jesus came, before he could deliver anybody from those things, he had to first deliver humanity from the oppression of sin. And once he dealt with sin, then he could deal with the wickedness of men like Herod and the Roman Empire. It's sin that Christ came to conquer first. And make no mistake about it, he has conquered sin when he went to the cross and when he rose from that grave. Amen, hallelujah. But he's going to come back one day. And he will, as Psalms chapter 2 says, as Psalm chapter 2 says, he will put the nations under his feet and they will be his footstool. And he will rule from David's throne. Does it bother us when we look at the world today? It should. Does it bother me when I look at our country today? Of course it does. But you know what excites me? 
is I know how the world is going to look one day. Because Jesus is going to be ruling from David's throne. What does he say to that church? <laughs> look at verse 4 and verse 5. You have a few names in Sardis, chapter 3, 4 and 5, that haven't defiled their garments. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcomes the same will be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. To him that overcomes, there it is again. To him that overcomes, you will be clothed in white raiment. Here's what he says. To the church today that is seeking some form of political purity or some sort of religious purity or some sort of moral purity, he says to the church who is looking for these things, who's trying to fix the world in the ways that we want to fix the world, he says the day is going to come when the only way the world will be fixed is when everyone who is on the earth has been made pure as Christ is pure. Christ knows the deepest, darkest thoughts of man. He knows the best of us and he knows the worst of us. And beloved, everybody in this room, every one of us, me, you, every one of us, there's a wickedness in our life that either we know it, and by the grace of God, it's subdued to him every day, or there's a fleshliness and a wickedness in us that we don't think is there anymore, and it's just waiting for the opportunity to rise up. I have seen the best of men take power and become the absolutely worst of men. I have seen the worst of men take power and become the best of men. And it doesn't have anything to do, listen to me, beloved, with who that man was as much as with who God is. And that's why the Bible says the things that are hidden in the darkness, he will bring to light. He will bring out what's really in the hearts of man. And that's what the word of God does. And that's what Christ does. And the day is going to come when we will be given white raiment and we will be pure. And when you look at the world today and when you think about the things that are happening in our country today, when you think about, I got to stay in the word. When we think about what's wrong with this world, it is Christ who can fix it. When you look at how we're treating each other today, when you look at the impurity and the wickedness in this, in this world, it is Christ alone who says that when he comes back in his time, when he is on David's throne, that there will be that time when there will be purity on the earth and will be clothed in white and the world will be right. A purity that only the Spirit can give. And then, what does he say to the last church? Look at chapter 3, verse 14. To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. To the church at Laodicea, he says, I am the perfect witness, and I am the head of creation. I am the faithful and true witness, and I am the beginning of creation. Now, if you catch that, you'll notice that he starts and concludes his letter to all seven churches by saying the same thing, but in a very different way. See, when he starts, he says, I'm the ones that holds the angels, and I walk among the seven candlesticks. And he concludes by saying, I'm the faithful and true witness. I am the beginning of creation. He's saying, I am the sovereign Lord Jesus Christ. Everything starts with me, and everything ends with me.
And he writes to the seven churches and he says, And by the way, the two churches that he started, Ephesus and Laodicea, as we saw last week, these were the churches that were called to keep their passion for Christ. So what does he say to the two churches that were struggling with being passionate and love with Jesus? He says to them, remember that I'm the source of your life. Remember who I am. Remember that I'm in control of everything, even when everything looks like it's out of control. There is nothing that will catch God by surprise. He doesn't wake up because he doesn't sleep. Amen. God does not slumber nor sleep as we do. But if you want to use that terminology just to get it to make a point, God never wakes up, looks at the news and says, man, I didn't see that coming. God knows everything that's happening and why, and he's in absolute control, and he's working and moving everything towards the day that gets closer and closer. The more you look at this world, beloved, then one of two things is going to happen. You're going to see a greater descent into wickedness, letting us know that we're getting that much closer to Christ, or by God's grace, we're going to see another great revival, and there are going to be people coming into the kingdom, and the church is going to thrive and rise, and it's going to continue to do that until it finally reaches the point where we've descended into such a level of wickedness that God says enough is enough, and Jesus comes back and that's when this world will be made the way that it needs to be made you see man broke the garden of Eden only God can fix it and he has a plan to do just that what does he say to this last church look at verse 20 and 21 behold I stand at the door and knock if any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and sat down upon or sat down with my father in his throne. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What does he promise to this last church? And again, he's promising this to all seven churches. He's just using them in their unique situation to identify himself a different way and make a different promise. But the titles are the same for every church and the promises are the same for every church and every Christian. Amen? I need you to understand that this morning. If you don't get anything else, that what he is promising to you, he is promising to the person sitting beside you. There is no promise that you and I are given in the body of Christ that does not go to anyone else who is just as faithful and just as surrendered and just as much a child of God as you and I are. And there is no church that God favors above any other church. We look at churches today. We look at numbers. Man, look at that church. They got 5,000, 10,000, 50,000. Can I say to you that I'm more and more convinced today that the bigger a church gets, the less they're probably committed to the word of God. Because Jesus said, beware when all men speak well of you. Beware when everyone speaks good of you. Beware when you become popular and accepted because, because that means you've fallen out of favor with God. But he says, rejoice. Rejoice when you are rebuked. Rejoice when men speak evil of you. Rejoice when they persecute you. Because so did they to your fathers, the prophets, who were committed to the word of God. The day is going to come, beloved, when it's not going to be easier to build a church. It's going to be harder. Let me restate that. <laughs> the day is not going to come when it's going to be easier for Christ to build his church. It's going to be evident how much harder it is. 
by how much harder we re- receive the word of God and how, more, how we are more committed to wickedness in our selfish ways than the word of God. This is what I wrote down in conclusion. <laughs> All the titles and the rewards in this passage overlap and they echo each other. The idea is that we, the church, are not of this world. And we can never allow our allegiance to lie anywhere in this world to a political party, to a religious denomination, to a culture, to a class, but only to Christ and his eternal kingdom. My commitment, my allegiance, your commitment, your allegiance should lie in the word of God which tells us about the Son of God who is the only one who can give life from God. Our allegiance has to be, as a church, to this book and to the God who gave us this book. And it's not going to be easy. There are going to be times in your life and mine where we're going we're to try and take a stand and we're going to find something in the Word of God. We're going to share it. We're going to be told it's not popular, it's not acceptable, it's not cultural, it's not whatever. We have to decide whether or not we're going to strive to be that overcomer, to be that individual and to be that church that one day when we stand before God, he's able to look at us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. We're looking for that day, not when we receive the applause of men, but when we receive the applause of heaven. When he gives to us that stone with a name written on it that no man knows. Save God and those of us when we receive it. Amen? Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes with me?